Um, so this back room right here, uh, we kind of wanted uh, to show this to, to give an idea of just uh, a bit of the equipment. And um, This is Jordan, and he's guiding me through a suite of offices in suburban Maryland. I'm not allowed to say exactly where I am in Maryland. They asked me not to. The whole place has that new office smell and eerie post-COVID quiet that lots of offices seem to have these days. You know, lots of space, not many people. Jordan has taken me into a kind of workshop for an arm of the U.S. military, something called the Cyber National Mission Force. The shop is known internally as the Forge. And this is one of the places where the military repairs and builds and maintains super powerful systems that they then deploy around the world to help hunt bad guys in computer networks. In other words, if this were a Bond movie, this room is the kind of place Q would be putting the finishing touches on the cool gadgets before he hands them to James. A pen. This is a class four grenade. Three clicks, arms the four second fuse, another three disarms it. But Jordan is no secret spy. He's a staff sergeant in the U.S. Army and also happens to be a data engineer for one of the military's cyber protection teams. And the unlikely star that he's brought me to see is a very special suitcase. So these are roll-away, they look like roll-away luggage. Uh, they are, yes. Yeah. So uh, Think black, shiny, hard shell cases. Right. Nice handles for modularity. They have wheels built into it. Right. Uh, like James Bond's pen that also happens to launch grenades, the innocuous-looking luggage sitting in front of me is hiding a supercomputer that helped Ukraine battle Russia in cyberspace. In fact, these carry-on computers were specifically designed so they'd fit into the overhead compartment of a commercial flight and wouldn't need to be checked in. This is a suitcase you would not want to lose. Got it. Can I just pick it up? Sure. Oh, my God. It's really heavy. Like 40 pounds of heavy. But the ability to put so much computing power in such a compact space has meant that American cyber warriors can grab and wheel a huge portion of the military's cyber know-how to just about anywhere in the world. And there's even a name for what they've put together. It's called a hunt kit. And uh, is that a hunt kit right there? Uh, that is a portion of, of the hunt kit. That is one of the, the components to it. Jordan pats a stack of small black boxes on a plastic cart. This is one of the two main computing components they take to far-flung destinations. Inside the suitcase portion of the kit is a very powerful server that holds lots of data. And the boxes on the cart he just pointed to? This is one of our nodes. Um, Those nodes are hooked up to a foreign partner's network so they can scan for bad guys hiding inside of them. It looks like my cable TV box. Yes, that's, that's uh, definitely a good uh, visualization for these guys. Uh, the compactness, the size, and even the build, um, the, the toughness of these things are, are very similar to what you would find out of that. So, so The nodes are heavy, too. Imagine a five-pound cable TV box. And Jordan says they weigh so much because crammed into these tiny boxes is the power of several very high-end computers. Jordan lays one of the server and a suitcase units on the table. We leave it on like that. We pop off a few of the, the sides, uh, which is just that hard shell plastic right. uh, to make sure it has uh, the capability for airflow to keep it nice and cool. Uh, and it this is not a suitcase that opens. Instead, two of its sides just pop off, giving you access to the server inside. And it actually looks like the back end of a server. Lots of ports and wires and flashing lights. 
So this is on standby mode right now. I'm going to go ahead and click on uh, the kit and you'll kind of hear it go through its, its power on sequence. In late 2021, U.S. cyber operatives packed up these suitcases and little boxes and a handful of other computer parts and rolled them out of this very room and then flew them halfway around the world to hook them up to critical computer networks in Ukraine. Sounds like it's going to take off. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We bring you true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, we go behind the scenes of an American hunt forward operation, a special kind of defensive cyber mission. U.S. operatives deployed just weeks before the Russian invasion to help Ukraine prepare for what people feared might be the world's first hybrid war, a war fought both on the ground and in cyberspace. And we got exclusive, unusual access to the people who planned the mission, operationalized it, and then lived it. And they reveal new details about how hunt-forward operations are becoming a key component of modern cyber defense. Well, what's the worst that could happen? So if your worst fears are true, they're probably already there. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. The Cyber National Mission Force has a variety of hunt teams in various stages of deployment all over the world. The idea is to hunt foreign adversaries and networks before they have time to do much damage. The Mission Force teams specialize and focus on what's known as the Big Four. The four nation states considered to be the biggest cyber threats, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Until recently, these kinds of defend forward operations didn't get many headlines. The marquee events always seem to involve offensive cyber attacks, cyber teams that shuttered a troll farm in Eastern Europe or someone that hacked into a terrorist organization in the Middle East. The flip side of that coin, defensive operations, have traditionally suffered from the perception that defensive cyber is a kind of wait-and-see, whack-a-mole deal. You passively wait for malware to show up, and then you react and take it out. Yeah, it's not a whack-a-mole. We go through the intelligence and targeting and planning process a hundred times in a month. This is Ryan. He's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army and the deputy commander of a joint task force that specializes in hunting Russian cyber activity. He says defensive work is in fact a kind of active hunt. We understand our adversary. We understand the game. We look for the most likely place where we're, we are to find that game. We're looking for behaviors. We're looking for their capabilities, the things they don't want us to know. Ryan was one of a half dozen cyber operatives we spoke to who deployed to Ukraine before the war. This is the first time they're speaking publicly about the mission. We're only using their first names to protect their identities. It's important to understand that typically hunt-forward operations are months in the making. Before the 2020 U.S. presidential elections, Cybercom, the military's main cyber arm, wanted to get ahead of whatever Russia might be planning before the vote in the U.S., 
They wanted to deploy operatives to places that might provide clues to the Russians' intentions, places closer to home. So they deployed, among other places, to Estonia, long a victim of Russian cyber attacks. Setting up that mission was a long, drawn-out process. The U.S. Embassy was involved, there were authorizations worked out, negotiations with Estonian authorities that essentially said, you can be in this network with us, but we're not comfortable having you in that network. But when Ryan and the Hunt Forward teams were told they were going to Ukraine... That process was condensed into about 30 days in this case. With war on the horizon, the U.S. and Ukraine fast-tracked the deployment. Where you're looking at the summer exercises back in 2021... Uh, the Russians are amassed on the border. And at the end of that kind of logical conclusion, what's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, we realized that this was probably a place where we needed to be. If your worst fears are true, they're probably already there. In other words, Russian cyber operators had probably already found systems to compromise. They were probably already hiding in key networks. Fast forward to mid-December 2021, just a few months before the Russians would invade. Ryan and other American cyber operatives flew to Ukraine. They landed in Kyiv rolling those heavy black suitcases filled with hunt kits, greeted by a team of Ukrainian cyber operatives who would become their partners in the mission. Right, so it's like a land party. We're all just kind of in there uh, getting our system set up. A land party, as in local area network. Back in the 90s, when broadband internet was expensive and hard to get, People used to gather in some big physical space, connect their computers and consoles to the same network, and then play video games. The Hunt Team operations room was like that. Big table, lots of computers, switches in the middle. A mass of boxes and wires. Putting the network devices someplace where someone's not going to step on them, trying to figure out who pairs up with uh, their, their counterpart, and then putting really you know that paper plan into action. Who's going to start hunting for bad guys on this server? Where do you want to start? How do we get this sort of access? And it's really just working through those steps and just getting getting down to it. So it's sort of like uh, figuring out a pattern and practice of a particular criminal. You know he really likes to go in second floor windows. So that's where you look first because you know that's where he likes to go. Is that a good metaphor? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. To figure out the pattern and practice of the Russians, they had to think like them. If we were them, what would we target? And they started brainstorming with the Ukrainians. Military functions like command and control, for instance, or communications. You look at civil infrastructure, things like power, things like water, bridges, dams, and, and the like. Most of those tools of conventional warfare and even civilian infrastructure are connected to the internet these days. So the potential attack surface is endless. Everything's vulnerable. So understanding that this could happen, we realized that if they're working on these things, they're probably working on them now. And we need to get into a position where we can witness this, observe it, and do something about it. And the truth of the matter is, Ukraine has been going toe-to-toe with Russian adversaries in cyberspace for years. Russia has targeted their electrical grid, blanketed them with misinformation. And that meant that, by necessity, Ukraine had built one of the more sophisticated network defenses in Europe, American hunt teams had deployed there three times before, and they had worked with Ukraine and put a lot of safeguards in, but nothing is foolproof. Ukraine declined to talk to us for this story. So from a technical sense, you know, if if I'm a hacker, I'm looking for places where I can uh, find a window or a door to break into. I'm looking for vulnerable services. 
uh, I'm looking for places to hide in a way that look normal, uh, wouldn't tip the average admin uh, looking at that network on a daily basis. And this is where the partnership element of a hunt mission comes into play. The networks these teams are analyzing can be gigantic, and they're all a little different. And it would be pretty hard to tell if something was out of the ordinary unless you had someone familiar with the network sitting right next to you, helping you know what to look for. We're definitely sitting next to our, our partner and, and operating, exchanging ideas, going to the whiteboard. And things you might not expect to come up, like cultural translation between visiting cyber operators and their Ukrainian hosts. Take the time they were talking about something but couldn't quite understand what each person was referring to. And it's really funny. They'll have uh, a certain way of drawing uh, a network object. And the terminology gap had to, had to be kind of beaten before we uh, proceeded. After talking past each other for a while, they moved from words to whiteboards to maps and drawings. So you were communicating with pictures on a whiteboard instead of using a particular you know, term of art in cyber. Is that the idea? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then the boards and paper started coming out. And we're all kind of sitting over this, this big map and pointing, right? Uh, almost like any other military operation where you're looking at geography, we're looking at you know, logical and physical space. Turns out the Ukrainian teams used the word object for the word network and schema for a network map. But it took a while to work all that out. And, and I say object now because that was uh, exactly the term that our friends used there uh, to describe a system or a target of interest within the network. They would say object. After the break, we peer over the shoulder of one of these teams and they show us what they discovered lurking inside a Ukrainian network. It was, uh, when we first got it, uh, very complex malware, I would say. The people who wrote it seemed to really know exactly what they were doing with this. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. When the American Hunt Forward teams were deployed to Ukraine in the beginning of December 2021, they expected to be there just a few weeks. The plan was that the team would be back with their families by Christmas. But the mission commander kept calling back to the States, saying she needed more time. She needed more manpower. When I flew over there, I, there were about 20 of us that, that flew over initially. Sharon was the team lead of the Hunt Forward operation in Ukraine. She's a major in the U.S. Marine Corps. And her team that started at 20 people quickly grew to more than 40. Typically, these hunt team operations look at just one or two networks at a time. In Ukraine, in the run-up to the war, they were hunting on three networks. 
And then, as we'll explain in a minute, there was a fourth. That's because of the cyber attack that they'd all been bracing for. It arrived early one morning in January 2022. Ukrainian government has fallen prey to malware cyber attack. In mid-January, I had woke up one morning. We were about to continue the hunt missions as normal for the day and checked my phone and had immediately received you know, all of these articles and information from our local partners and from... It looked like ransomware, announced with a message that said, Ukrainians, all information about you is public. Be afraid and expect worse. It's your past, present, and future. The foreign ministry was hit, the cabinet of ministers, and the Security and Defense Council. The ransomware appeared to be inside Ukrainian government networks. Our partners asked us, can you please conduct any type of analysis you can on different drives, different systems that have been impacted by these cyber attacks? And so that's what we did. We stood up Within hours, Ukrainians were handing over physical hard drives, logs, files, and the HFO began pulling together a team to study them that fourth line of effort. Because we had established that trust and just began to, to dig into them to understand the attacks a little bit more. And one of the people asked to dig into them was this guy. Could you introduce yourself to me, please? Of course. I'm Patrick. I was one of the youngest people that went on the mission when I was there. I was actually only 20, so not even old enough to drink back here in the States. Uh, this is my first deployment. Very nervous going into it, so... I'm glad everything went well, I suppose. Patrick is sitting across from me at an unclassified facility in rural Maryland. But we aren't alone. There's a crowd of people there, mostly to make sure Patrick doesn't tell me anything classified. That's as much as I'm allowed to say about that. I can tell you Patrick is in the Navy, but nothing beyond that. He looks like a teenager. And he was the guy asked to analyze what the world now knows as Whispergate malware. It was uh, when we first got it. Uh, very complex malware, I would say. The people who wrote it seemed to really know exactly what they were doing with this. Patrick and his team went to work, and they had two options for trying to assess how much damage this new bit of sinister code had done and what it might do. The first, static analysis, is exactly what it sounds like. Which is going through without running it and trying to determine if we can find anything that might uh, flag on the malware or look particularly suspicious just inside the malware itself while it's not running. Static analysis doesn't just teach the hunt teams about the malware and the way it's constructed. It also provides clues about the people who developed it, the same way you might pick up a fingerprint off a bomb or learn about the detonator and the way it's wired up if the bomb hasn't exploded yet. Static analysis can tell operators something about how the adversary likes to break into systems they're targeting, or it can reveal methods they use to hide in plain sight. Dynamic analysis, on the other hand? Dynamic is actually taking that piece of malware and putting it into a safe, contained environment, and what we call detonating it, or running it, to try to see exactly what it does, and then we record it. We... The way you might have a controlled explosion of a bomb. The dynamic test environment, where they actually let the malware run, is known as a sandbox. They recreate the network in an isolated environment, and then they kind of set off the bomb. They let the malware do its thing and watch how it works, all without harming the actual network it was intending to attack. Patrick and his Ukrainian partners took this malware that appeared to be ransomware and ran a dynamic simulation. And when he did put the malware in the sandbox, at first it did look like run-of-the-mill ransomware. So it would pop up a little message on screen saying, 
you can pay X amount to get your files back. But when they analyzed it further, it became obvious that there was no method for this to reverse the encryption it did. At the end of the day, you weren't getting your files back, period, and stop. It was designed to destroy them. What they found was something called wiper malware, something that's built to look like ransomware, but actually it was something much worse. Wiper malware isn't about locking up files and waiting for a ransom to be paid to return your files. In this case, it was about pretending to be ransomware, just to buy time for the malware to do what it was really intended to do, wipe files and destroy networks. That's what they now realized was in the Ukrainian government systems. It became publicly known as Whispergate. It was a very complex piece of malware. Um, it had two stages that it went through. And this was my first time discovering something so complex in the wild. So I think what's, what's different about it is the scale in which it was used. Okay. This is Major General Joe Hartman. He's the commander of the Cyber National Mission Force. General Hartman was nominated for his third star last month. And if confirmed by the Senate, he will become the next deputy commander of U.S. Cyber Command, the military's cyber arm that we talked about before. Uh, you know, mid-January, we saw literally dozens of, of wiper attacks. You know, we saw some attempt to obfuscate that it was, in fact, you know, a nation-state executing a wiper attack by making it look like a ransomware attack. The general said the use of wiper malware wasn't new, but he was convinced that Whispergate wasn't off the shelf. It was clearly created by the Russians with the Ukrainians in mind. This appeared to be specific to the operations there in, uh, in the Ukraine. General Hartman explained that once a problem like that is spotted, the hunt teams act like cyber management consultants. They work with the local teams to conduct the analysis. And when we identify either malware or some type of misconfiguration on a network, we will make recommendations on changes that an organization should make to their network to make it more secure. And the partner will take uh, the remediation actions on their own network. So you say, okay, we found X, we've isolated X. We suggest you do Y to maybe get it gone. Absolutely. And look, it's, it's generally based on our experience. It's based on industry standards. Broadly speaking, and particularly in times of war, these hunt teams will stop at the recommendation stage. They'll let the local team implement their suggestions or not, as they wish. In part, to avoid inserting the United States actively into the war, and in part, to not have hunt teams wading in and changing someone else's network. And sometimes these teams are welcome, as in the case of Ukraine and Estonia. And sometimes the U.S. might offer help, but countries want nothing to do with them. They're concerned that the U.S. military teams aren't just there trying to help, they worry hunt teams are there to quietly drop things on a country's networks, that they essentially were there to be spies instead of allies. General Hartman says they always and only engage with permission, and only in the ways the partner allows them to, which is one of the reasons why the rules of engagement are spelled out so carefully. So for us, our authorities are, we bring unclassified equipment uh, when we execute a defensive hunt operation. Uh, we install that equipment on a partner's network uh, based on an agreement with that partner. Everything is laid out in detail. Which parts of the local network can the Americans look at? Which can they not? Members of local cyber teams always sit side by side with the Americans. And it isn't just the local teams that get something out of the deployments. Depending on the agreement they have with the partner, hunt teams are sometimes able to bring samples of the malware they've helped capture and contain 
back home to the U.S. and study it, which is particularly useful because foreign adversaries will often try out malware on other countries before trying it out on the U.S. If you remember, there were a lot of reports in the news at that point. You know, we were expecting potential Russian attacks in the United States. And so there was a sense of urgency on the Ukrainian side, and there was a sense of urgency on the U.S. side. Nation-state actors tend to test their cyber weapons in networks that might not be as well protected before they attempt to use them on American networks. So these hunt-forward operations give the U.S. a hint as to what the adversary is working on, what might be coming. And then they can alert tech companies about potential vulnerabilities and get those vulnerabilities patched, which cuts off the low-hanging fruit attacks and forces adversaries to spend more time and money to try to get around defenses. This can slow them down or avert future attacks altogether. So offering allies this kind of help, Hartman says it helps the U.S. too. Gaining uh, access to malicious software in a foreign nation, sharing it with a private U.S. cybersecurity company that may have millions of endpoints is really beneficial to the defense of those things that we care about in the United States. So in other words, if you catch it over there, it's before it has a chance to come over here, and that's why it's to our advantage. Absolutely. Did you ever get a phone call in which they said, please don't go yet, or please don't go? I, I never got a phone call from the Ukrainians saying, please don't go. I think I probably got a couple of phone calls from my team saying, please don't make us go. They wanted to stay and help. And the American hunt teams did stay in Ukraine. Through Christmas, then their deployment slipped into New Year's, into mid-January for the discovery of the Whispergate malware, all with an eye to the Russian activity at the border. The team moved from a large hotel to a smaller one closer to the embassy, and eventually to a special operations forces safe house near the airport. Patrick, who was on his first deployment, remembers feeling everything sort of shift as the days drew closer to the late February invasion. Walking around, you started to feel that people were realizing that the Russians could invade. I recall one time I was walking down the street, and uh, I looked and I saw a piece of graffiti on the wall. I can't read Ukrainian, so I asked someone who was with us uh, who knew how to read it what exactly it said. Join your local militia, it read. So that's kind of when it hit me, that there could be fighting here in in a couple weeks. And then, General Hartman said, the order to pull out finally came. Uh, And that was, uh, you know, a fairly emotional order to, hey, it's time for everybody to leave the country. Sharon and a gunnery sergeant were the last ones to leave. 72 hours later, all commercial flights leaving Ukraine were canceled. All told, General Hartman says the U.S. and Ukraine have shared over 6,000 indicators of compromise, those little granular artifacts that suggest that malicious cyber actors have been inside a network. There are things like irregular IP addresses or unusual activity. And it's clear that the Russians are still at it. In fact, last week, Microsoft attributed the Whispergate malware to a new group of Russian military intelligence hackers. They call them Cadet Blizzard. And Microsoft suspects the group may be playing a key role in the brutal cadence of cyber attacks Ukraine has seen since the war began. And Hartman, he says his teams are still watching. Is it safe to assume that there are some teams deployed around places that are close to Russia and close to Ukraine? So I've been in command almost four years, and it's safe to assume there are always teams deployed uh, in the European uh, theater of command. In Europe and around the world. Though they have pulled out of Ukraine, Hartman said there are six to ten teams deployed at any given moment, always on the hunt. 
This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. The United Kingdom has announced that it will more than double its funding of a remote incident program aimed at helping Ukraine fend off cyber attacks on its critical infrastructure. The British government has been helping Ukraine with cyber and signals intelligence from GCHQ, the British equivalent of the National Security Agency. The UK has already helped Ukraine by providing protection against Indestroyer 2 malware, which was targeting some of its industrial systems. The new funding, some $20 million, is aimed at helping Ukrainian cyber experts attribute attacks and gather evidence to prosecute them. And finally, the European Commission has called on member states to restrict, without delay, high-risk equipment suppliers from their 5G networks. It specifically mentioned the Chinese vendors Huawei and ZTE, saying they represented a materially higher risk. Beijing has accused the West of falsely claiming that Chinese equipment poses a security risk, alleging that the restrictions are actually a protectionist economic measure. I'm Dina Templerest. I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Sarah Wyman is our writer-reporter. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. And our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. Or send us an email at clickhere@recordedfuture.com. Check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Templerest. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.